0: Thank you, brother. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you. Thank you, Will. We're back at it. In our first lesson on the Lord's School of Prayer, Jesus taught us not to pray like hypocrites. That is, he taught us not to pray so that we might be seen and worshipped by other human beings. In our second lesson, Jesus taught us not to pray like pagans. That is, he taught us not to pray like people who need to try to get God's attention and then manipulate him once they have his attention in order to get what they want. The Lord's teaching on prayer here in Matthew could easily be divided into two halves. The first half would be Jesus teaching us negatively, teaching us how not to pray. And then the second half, the part that we would begin today, would be Jesus positively then teaching us what we need to pray. This pattern of teaching was common in the ancient world and is probably even common in your life. But you see it in other places throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, Don't use your tongue for foolish and filthy talking. Rather, use it for thanksgiving. Don't take part in evil and wicked works. Rather, expose them. Don't get drunk with wine. Rather, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't do this, but do do that. And here, in Matthew's uh, rendition of the Lord's Prayer we get the same thing. Jesus is teaching us in one half not to pray one way, but then in the second half to pray the correct way. So let's, let's read the Lord's Prayer together, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts As we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are here together as your children this morning. We recognize that we don't know how to pray, and we ask that you would teach us how to pray more faithfully. Amen. If you grew up in a Christian home, it would not be unreasonable for me to assume that you grew up praying the Lord's Prayer. If that's true, you've probably prayed the first four words, our Father in Heaven, or KJV, our our Father who art in Heaven, but our Father in Heaven, you've probably prayed these four words a couple hundred times. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, if you're just an American who's been alive for the last 50, I don't want to date you, 80 A hundred? Anybody? No, years. You probably still have prayed the first four words of this prayer a bunch of times. And I wonder if the privilege and the power of these four words might have grown cold to you. I wonder if it might be lost on you. I wonder if it's so familiar that you forget how amazing it really is that Jesus is teaching you to pray to God in this way. And so, my hope for our time together this morning is to unpack the power of these four words. My prayer, as I teach on this prayer, is that you will never again be able to say, Our Father in heaven, without being thunderstruck by the power and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, I have four points for you this morning. Four points. What does this text say about you? What does this text say about the church? What does this text say about Jesus, and what does this text say about God? What does this text say about you, the church, Jesus, and God? Point number one, what does this text say about you? It is extremely natural for us to call God Father. I mean, it just feels like it's what you're supposed to do, just like you would call your mom, Mom or your child by their first name, or your husband by his nickname, it just feels natural. We do it without even thinking twice. What's strange is that many non-Christians who have grown up in the West, where so much of our thought life and our language has been influenced by a deep well of Christian thinking, even non-Christians feel comfortable thinking about God as their father. Were you to suggest to them that God is not their father, in fact, they would be deeply offended. Many actual Christians, not just professing Christians, but actual Christians, would even agree with them. They would find it strange to not let a non-Christian refer to God as their father. And the reason why is because an entire generation of Christians are basically biblically illiterate. They've been led to believe that everyone in the world, every single person, has God as their father. But this idea comes from the world. It does not come from God or his word. What we do find in God's word is that God had a son named Adam. In the beginning, God created Adam to be his son, but Adam fell in sin. And after Adam fell in sin, his relationship with God as his father was shattered, broken, And every son of Adam that has walked the earth since that day has had a broken relationship with God. In John 8, 44, Jesus tells the Jews, these Jews who think that they can call God Father because they belong to Abraham, he says this, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You might be thinking, yeah, Sean, but... Those are those pesky Pharisees. You know, those are those old nasty Sadducees, the lawyers, the experts of the law. That doesn't apply to me. Jesus would never say that I, as a non-Christian, have Satan as my father, but nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is that Pharisees exemplify what it looks like to be a child of Satan, but anybody who does not belong to Jesus Christ has no right to call God his father. Listen to the universal language that the Apostle Paul uses when he talks about the bad news of the gospel. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the air, excuse me, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature Children of wrath. Not children of God, children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Like everybody. If you're looking for a scripture somewhere in this book that tells you that just because you've chosen sin over God doesn't mean that your relationship with God isn't broken, you won't find it. Instead, you'll find verses like Romans 5.10, which tell us that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. You'll find verses like Colossians 1.21, which tell us that in our sin, we were, quote, alienated from God. And we were hostile in our minds towards God because of our evil deeds. Listen to the Apostle John, who I don't think could say it any clearer. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. John says there are two groups of people in the world. Those who are children of God and those who are children of Satan. So what I'm saying is this. Apart from adoption by God, no one has the right to pray these first two words of the Lord's Prayer. The Bible could not be any clearer. Only those who belong to God through Jesus can refer to God as Father, and only those who have been adopted by God belong to him. Paul begins his letter to the Ephesian church by telling them about all of the blessings that they have in Christ. He says, you've been chosen, you've been predestined, you've been this, you've been that. One of the main things that he says is that you've been adopted. Listen to the language he uses here. In love he, that's God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We were not sons of God, but then God made a way for us to be brought into the family. That's adoption. And kids, you guys know what adoption is. Kids, if you're drawing or playing or tinkering or laying down or sleeping, wake up, focus, time, just, I need like two minutes, okay? All right. Adoption, you guys know what adoption is. It's when a little boy or a little girl, a baby, you could be older, but they don't have a home. They don't have a family. They don't have a mommy or a daddy, right? They live in an orphanage. But then a mommy and a daddy go to the orphanage and they say, okay, I'm going to take you home and you're going to come and be with me and I'm going to be your mommy, and I'm going to be your daddy, and you're going to take my name, and you're going to have all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that go along with being a part of this family. All of this because I love you. That's what adoption is. And when Jesus saves us, this is what God does for us. He brings us into his family. He adopts us. And now, rather than being enemies of God, we are his children. Rather than being strangers, we are familiar. He becomes our Father. And He does all of this because He loves us so very much. Because of sin, none of us deserves to call God our Father, but because of grace, we can. And we have the right to do so. Listen to John as he tells us about this. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to to become the children of God. Now, I don't want to move forward without focusing on something very important in this verse. John doesn't say that everyone, every single person on this earth, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, agnostic, atheist, Christian, not everyone has the right to call God their father. Only the person who has received Christ in faith may refer to God in this way. So is that you? Oh, yeah, of course,. Huh? Yeah, that's me. I believed. I, when I was nine, I was at this camp. there was a big fire truck out. Everybody was getting baptized. I went, I got dunked. I believed in Jesus. I wrote the date in the front cover of my Bible. Yeah, that's definitely me. Well, maybe. Maybe not. The greatest evidence that you have received Jesus is that you, not that you once believed in him at a church camp, but that you still believe in him today. And the greatest evidence that you believe in Jesus today is that you're walking in obedience to Jesus. That is the way that you know that you have the right to call God your father. Not that you believed once, but that you believe now. And the evidence of your belief is your obedience. If you are not walking in obedience to Jesus now, your baptism was nothing more than getting wet. It might have been fun. It might have been something cute for your family to take pictures of, but it was in no way baptism. That date that may be written in the front cover of your Bible, that may simply be the date that you deceived yourself. If you have not repented of your sins, and if you are not still repenting of your sins and still walking in full faith, with Jesus Christ, you cannot pray this prayer. But the good news of the gospel, and it is so good. I mean, how bad is that bad news, right? That's pretty bad. You're not going to hear that in a lot of churches for a good reason. That doesn't make us feel good inside because it's really, really bad news. It is extremely offensive. It makes us want to hold our no- nose and kind of pull away. But the good news is just so much better. In light of how lost we are, I can't believe that all we have to do to be adopted into God's family is trust in his son, Jesus Christ. There's no paperwork, there's no legal fees, there's no court dates, no plane tickets, no lawyers and judges and social workers. All you have to do is turn to Jesus and turn away from your sin. If you do that, you can join in the chorus of God's people who cry out to him in prayer and refer to him As their father. With this big and beautiful truth, just hopefully right here at the front of your minds, listen to the words of 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Point number two What does this text say about the church? The first word of the Lord's Prayer is our. And this teaches us that we are not our own. It teaches us that we do not live in a spiritual vacuum. You guys know those banks? They still have a couple around where uh, you go to the drive-thru and they have the tube. You know, you pull out the canister, you put in your ID and the check and the deposit slip and you put it back and then it goes, shoo, and it goes down and then it's so fun. We live in the future right? That's how a lot of people think they exist towards God. They think that they just live in this tube, just them to God. But here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, he doesn't teach you to think about God in that way. You don't pray to God as my Father. And as we get to see more of the petitions, you don't ask for my bread. Give us this day our daily bread. We pray our Father in heaven. You have not been saved to live on your own little spiritual island. You've been saved into a family, a big family. Every single person who has ever trusted the word of the Lord is a part of this family. Asian, American, liberal, conservative, young, old, rich, poor, smart, dumb, Democrat, Republican, If anybody has repented of their sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, they belong to this family. Every single person in this room who has repented of their sins and only the people in this room who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ belong to this family. Is it a perfect family? No. But this is our family. That person that you've kind of been avoiding because maybe they're just a little awkward socially, they're part of the hour that person that maybe rubbed you the wrong way that you might be a little bitter towards, you don't agree with them about this, that, or the third, they're part of the hour. They're part of this family. The hour in this prayer is the universal church of God, but the way that we see the hour is right here on Sunday mornings when we come together as a covenant community. This is our family. And in light of what we've learned from point one, that only those who belong to Jesus are a part of the family. You should know that this prayer does not belong to unbelievers. It doesn't belong to the world. Listen, you should never, ever pray this prayer with a non-Christian. This is not a prayer to be prayed with your unbelieving neighbor, for example. Jesus is clear that we are called to love our neighbors, and he is crystal clear that every man is our neighbor. Parable of the Good Samaritan. But not every man is our brother, and not every man is a member of our family. This is not a prayer to be prayed at Thanksgiving with your agnostic aunt or your Buddhist brother. They may be a part of your physical family, but this prayer does not belong to an earthly bloodline. This prayer belongs to a people who have been covered in the blood of Jesus. This is not a prayer to be prayed at an ecumenical service, my fellow elders, with orthodox rabbis or Muslim imams or the local prosperity preacher down the street. This is not a prayer to be prayed at a community gathering where we foolishly assume that everyone who lives in our community is a Christian. This is not a prayer to be prayed at a football game or anything else along those lines. This prayer belongs to the church the body of Christ the children of God again that's pretty negative a lot of who, who should you not pray this prayer with but on the positive side there are so many people that you can pray this prayer with anywhere that you find yourself with another believer in Jesus Christ you can stop and pray this prayer sitting in Starbucks reading your Bibles at a gathering with a couple of the members of the church at a softball game, your husband and wife sitting in your bedroom at night before you go to bed after devotionals. This prayer belongs to a family and anybody who's part of the family, even if they are a distant, distant cousin from a faraway land. You can pray this prayer with them. You have more in common with a believer from China than you do your unbelieving neighbor that lives right next to you. Which leads us to our third point. What does this text say about Jesus? I'm going to uh, kind of prepare you guys. This, this, this point of the sermon is probably the most theologically dense, but it's also one of the shorter points, so just hang with me, okay? Let's put on our thinking caps and turn the focus up to nine. There are two things that we have to understand about Jesus if we want to understand this prayer. Two things. Two things. And these are subpoints, okay? Jesus is the true Son of God, and only through our union with Christ do we become sons of God. Okay, so sub point number one. Jesus is the true Son of God. There are only two sons of God in the Bible, Adam and Jesus. And we already talked about what happened with Adam. He ruined his relationship with the Father, and because of that, all of our relationships have been damaged as well. But the Lord sent another Adam. He sent a better Adam. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And Jesus Christ was not created, but rather he has existed since eternities past as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. The first man, Adam, was created in the image of God, but Jesus is himself the eternally existent Son of God, the exact Imprint of his representation. And this is the reason why the Apostle John refers to Jesus as, quote, the only Son from the Father. The only Son. Well, what does he mean there? I mean, we've already said that Adam was a son. What he means is that in the truest, deepest sense, he is the only true Son of God, he is eternally existent in this way. And Jesus understood this about himself, and that's why you see all throughout his ministry in the Gospels, he refers to God as his father. And he does it in a way that's very unique. If you read your Old Testament, you'll see that none of the prophets, even the greatest prophets like Moses, they don't refer to God with the kind of familiarity that Jesus does as their father. They talk about God being the father of Israel, but they never say my father. If you look at all the kings, even the greatest king, King David, you see that they don't refer to God with this kind of familiar language. They don't refer to God as their father. If you look at the priests, you see that they don't have this kind of familiar relationship with the father, the same way Jesus does. But in Jesus' ministry, in every single recorded prayer except for one, he refers to God as his father. So the first son, Adam, ruined our relationship with God, but Jesus, the true, eternally existent son, the second son, came and fixed what was once beyond repair. And so in light of this, we have to consider our union with Christ, Subpoint number two. Rather than spend a bunch of time trying to elaborate and teach kind of like in a systematic fashion about what the doctrine of our union with Christ means, I just want to show it to you. So... Pull out your Bibles if you have closed them. Pull them out. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. You're going to mark in it. That's okay. Uh, If you use your iPhone, that's fine too. You're not going to be able to mark it. Maybe you can highlight it. And then grab a pen or a pencil or a highlighter or whatever you use. And if you're saying, Sean, I'm not the kind of person who likes to write in my Bible, okay? Uh, That's fine. You don't have to. Just kind of track along with us. Let's go to the, the book of Ephesians real quick. We're going to just start... In chapter 1, we're not going to read all of it. I'm just going to take you to a couple of verses. Well, 16 verses. I really am hoping, though, that you'll mark in your Bibles because this is so great to see in the future, but that's neither here nor there. In the very first uh, verse of the book of Ephesians, Paul says, "...to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus." In verse number three, Paul talks about those who have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse four, if you continue, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse five, it says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. If you go to the end of verse six, it says that he has blessed us In the beloved, that is, in Jesus. In verse 7, it says, in him, referring to Jesus, we have redemption. If you go down to verse 11, it says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. If you go to verse 13, it says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. If you go to chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. How did he do it? Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him. If you go to the end of verse 7 of chapter 2, it says that in kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus, we have received his grace. If you go on to verse 13 of chapter 2, it says, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. If you go to verse 15, towards the end of the verse, actually kind of in the middle, it says, I'll just start at the beginning. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. That's his body. In verse 18, it says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In verse 22, it says, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Sixteen times. Sixteen times in the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul, as he tells you how redemption works, He says it's in Christ, it's through Christ, it's somehow connected to you being a part of Christ and his body. Every spiritual blessing that we receive from the hand of God, we receive by the power of the Holy Spirit through our union with Christ, that is our connection with him. So what is true of him and his relationship with the Father is now true of us because we are part of him. That's the doctrine of the union, of our union with Christ. And so Jesus teaches us to pray like this is true. When Jesus says, this then is how you should pray, Jesus is telling us that because we are in him, we can now address the Father in the same way that he does. We can now address the Father in the same way that he does. But not only does Jesus authorize us to pray in this way, he encourages us to. You know, when Jesus tells us to pray to God as our Father, he's not like some overly authoritarian older brother who's saying, hey, that's our dad. You better refer to him with some respect. You better call him Father. Father. No, the tone is completely different. It's like the tone of a sympathetic older brother in a family where they've just adopted a new baby. The new new kid in in the family is afraid to call the father, father, or dad, or daddy. And so he says, Mr. or sir. And the older brother comes along and he says, no, you don't have to refer to him like that. You're part of the family now. You can call him dad. Point number four. What does this text say about God? Point number four Jesus doesn't only teach us to pray to our Father, that's the first two words. He also teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven. To say that God is in heaven is not to identify his physical location. It's not like, okay, I'm I'm sending a prayer up to God. you know, address him as father, but street address uh, heaven, right? Heaven is not his zip code. Rather, well, actually, Solomon, he said at the dedication of the temple, behold, heaven in highest heaven cannot contain you, right? So Solomon knew that God didn't live in heaven. Or in Jeremiah 23, 24, the Lord himself asks, do I not fill heaven and earth? Right? So Jesus knew these scriptures better than we do. He knew that his father didn't just exist in the physical location known as heaven. Rather, to say that God lives in heaven is to communicate something about his nature. It's to communicate something about his attributes. Now, kids, if you've got notes, here's a word that you might have to put in there to ask your parents about, but I'm going to try to explain it, but here it is. Saying in heaven communicates God's transcendence. Transcendence. By transcendence, I'll just use biblical language to help you understand it. The Bible says that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It says that his ways are higher than our ways. The the writers of scripture ask questions like, who can know the mind of God and give him counsel? And the obvious answer is, no one. Or who can offer him anything that he needs? This is the view of God as transcendent. He's bigger than us. He's beyond us in every single way. But if you take this too far, you can have a wrong view of God. You can have a view of God like the deists, for example. The deists, they believe in a God, the God of the watchmaker. So this this is how they view God. God puts the universe together like a man builds a watch. He takes all the parts and pieces and assembles it, and then he twists it and he gets it running, and then he steps back and just lets it go. For the deist, God is not actively part of this world. If there is a God out there, he is not among us. He cannot be known, and to think that you can have a father-son kind of relationship with the God of the universe would be foolishness to a deist. God is there, says the deist, but he is silent. Now, in contrast to this view, you have the God of panentheism. Ooh, another big $2 word. But it's just the God that, you know, Hindus and Taoists and Buddhists believe in. They believe in a panentheist God. What that means is that instead of being transcendent, utterly beyond, he's utterly imminent. He's here present with us but not just the way that we would think he's here and present with us so much so that he is part of everything he's in this pulpit and in this carpet and in your clothes and beard and eyes he permeates every aspect of this created world so much so that everything then is divine that's what they think of God but both of these perspectives are wrong God has revealed himself to us as a God who is both transcendent yet utterly imminent. He is at one time above and beyond and bigger than us. He's distant, but at the same time near and present, involved and caring. And when Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven, he's giving us a balanced view of God. When we pray to God and say, our Father... We are communicating the nearness of God, the intimacy that we can have in our relationship with him. But when we pray the words in heaven, we are reminding ourselves that he is still God and he is still transcendent. Imagine uh, a very average citizen living in a kingdom where there is a king. And imagine that this citizen becomes friends with the king. Don't know how it happened, but it happened. He's just a regular peasant, but he makes friends with the king. And as a friend of the king, there's a certain sort of comfort and closeness in his relationship. He has a kind of familiarity with him. But this peasant, this this just citizen of the kingdom, he must never forget that the king is still the king. He can be familiar, but not overly familiar. He cannot forget who he's dealing with. And the same thing is True of us, brothers and sisters, we are being taught by Jesus to pray to our Father in Heaven. Our Father. But just remember that He's not like any other earthly father. He is our Father in Heaven. Finally, by teaching His people to address God as Father, Jesus is teaching us about the personal nature of God. The personal nature of God. What I mean is we don't believe in a god who is a force. Right? Like waves coming off of some celestial object. We believe in a god who is a person. Many men who have accepted Christ, excuse me, many men who have not accepted Christ as their savior, but who nevertheless can't escape the reality that God exists and that it's the most intellectually tenable position, they like to refer to God like this. He is the first cause. They'll say something like, He is the unmoved mover. If they are really full of themselves, they'll say that He is the ultimate ontological reality. Right? Now, philosophically, these things are true. But Jesus teaches us that if we belong to Him, we are not to think about God primarily in this way. We are to think about God as a father not the ultimate ontological reality i am bella's father i'm her provider i'm her discipliner i'm her sandwich maker i'm her band-aid provider but i don't want her to come home from school and cry out to me hi discipliner i missed you when she's sick in the middle of the night i don't want her to come into my room and say hi cleaner, up there's some vomit in the hallway right I want her to think about me primarily as her father. When, when I pass, I don't want her to say that she lost a provider. I want her to say that she lost her father. That's how I want her to know me. When she says she misses me, I want her to say that she misses her dad. Brothers and sisters, consider the God that we serve. The God who loves us. And what kind of love is this, that he should take a group of rebels, wicked and vile sinners like you and like me, and save us, and adopt us into his family, and give us his namesake, and give us all of the glorious inheritances that he has for us in heaven through his son Jesus Christ, and give us the privilege of being his sons and daughters. In Galatians 4.6, Paul writes these words. He says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that's how we pray. The Spirit that God has sent into our hearts compels us, moves us towards God, and He leads us into using this fatherly language. Our natural instinct is not to do this, but the Spirit gives us the ability to cry out to God as Father. And so now as sons and daughters, together, our family here in this church, indwelt and empowered by the same Holy Spirit, we will recite the Lord's Prayer together out loud as Michael Wall leads us in that prayer.